I want to start today, you know, in the last uh, couple of months, we've been standing together to read the scripture of the day, the text for the morning. But today, um, we're just not going to do that just yet. Today, to start the series, I just want to illustrate one text to you today. It is this. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? From 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body and God are intertwined? Do you not know that you are the new temple in which God dwells? Do you not know that you are the space in which God's love is now acting in the world? This is an important question from St. Paul. And though it sits in the context of a point about sexuality, and it's a point we're going to look at later on in the series, this poignant question actually sits within a far bigger arc from the apostle. He is uh, piece by piece addressing a dualism that is at play in the Greek community and one that's wrong. By raising this question, this question we can see Paul is prodding at a reality. Paul is saying that your being, your physical being, and God's present presence is not distant, but they can be together. I wonder if we could just set a little scene today to just sort of unravel this a little bit. Try and imagine this with me. Imagine that the Apostle Paul is not writing to the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, but instead he's sitting on Ponsonby Road on a Monday morning. He's gone to Daily Bread, the best cafe on Ponsonby Road, I think. He's drinking his regular order of a long black coffee, and he's eating one of those delicious cardamom morning buns. Can I get an amen? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you are missing out. And as he licks the cardamom sugar off his fingers, he pulls out his cell phone and he opens the news app and he starts to read. The first thumbnail. Well, it's a Monday morning and there's a special report from a journalist who went on a ride along with the St. John's ambulance paramedic crew for Saturday night. The journalist notes how after midnight, person after person that they picked up to bring to Auckland Hospital is heavily intoxicated completely inebriated from another night of binge drinking. The piece goes on to list that the binge drinking statistics that our emergency response services have to deal with every weekend and how they've ballooned due to uh, binge drinking. The numbers are far too high. The paramedic in the story goes on to say that as she reflects that at least a year ago when COVID lockdown was happening and the country was in lockdown, at least she could do what she actually signed up to do as a paramedic, she says. Showing up to people's homes, helping those in crisis, rather than having to de-escalate fights of a drink or drug fueled skirmish in the back alley behind a bar. I did not sign up for this, she says. And I imagine Paul just shaking his head and muttering as he scrolls through that story. Don't you know that your body is worth so much more to be treated like this? He closes that story. He starts scrolling down a little bit more. Next one, next story. This one is on a piece of how tech and hookup culture are overlapping. 
And the story goes on to talk about how apps are being used to trade sexual encounters in a commodity-like way. The piece talks about how listing for sex is now seen in no different to listing an item on Trade Me. It seems that our bodies and pleasure are being viewed in the same way as getting rid of some old furniture or trading a motor vehicle. We list it, we trade it. And Paul shakes his head yet again. I can just imagine him sitting there reading this. How could anyone view their sexuality like that? He asks no one in particular. Don't they know that their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's worth so much more than that. And at the bottom of the story, there's a few other stories, related stories that you can click on. And he finds himself hovering over a few, and he clicks one that looks interesting, reading a piece on how after using porn, men have a sudden moment of clarity post-ejaculation when they suddenly realize that what they have been looking at, what they have been using to arouse pleasure, was completely inappropriate and degrading. A sudden moment of clarity. And scientists are trying to find out why this moment of surreal clarity exists and where it comes from. And I can imagine Paul reading that article thinking, it's obvious, their bodies are trying to tell them something and they're just not listening. And he wishes maybe the interviewer would have called him up for his opinion in the piece. And finally, he gets out and he reads one last story. This one about a woman who has decided to publish a magazine, a magazine in a different way. She is going to not allow any Photoshop touch-ups in the magazine that she's producing. This editor, concerned with the increasing stats of young teenage girls who are suffering from poor body image, she has decided to make a stand and change the way her magazine operates. She wants to share a more realistic portrait of the human body. Rather than some touched-up portrait, she wants to share the real pictures. And a quote in this says, What if our digital enhancement of bodies is a way of us trying to project an ideal that none of us can actually achieve? Paul thinks to himself, this woman, this woman's got a little taste of this. And he closes the app. He pops his phone into his pocket. He sips back the last bit of his coffee, which has now gone cold. Don't they know that their bodies are so much more valuable than this? That they are the temple of God, that they are the place of God, that God and their body dwell together. Again, he mutters to no one in particular, but he grabs his coat and he heads out the door onto Ponsonby Road to start his day and he begins to think about what to do next. We have a cultural problem and the cultural problem is confusion. You know, while all of these stories that I've just used would be pretty hard to find in one scrolling of a news app, you know, New Zealand Herald or um, the Stuff app or Newsroom or whatever you read, it'd be probably pretty hard to find all those stories in one go. Yet, I'm pretty sure we can recognize each of those stories. They're not uncommon. And we could add so many more, couldn't we? You know, the thought of Paul's, what has your body got to do with this, could be applied to many things that are in culture today. Whether it's a sports star who is standing up on the podium wearing his Black Lives Matter t-shirt to tell the world that he cannot change the color of his skin. Whether it's climate change articles that are talking about the global effect of food production for our hamburgers or the consumption figures of kale. Whether it's gender dysphoria as people think they are the opposite sex or feel they are the opposite sex, but yet they are contained within the constraints of their physical body with the genitalia they have. We could add so many stories where Paul's sentiment, do you not know your body is important in this, could be applied. And it 
it could just be me. It could just be me, and I could be completely overlooking this. But, but my noticing is that we are living in a culture where we seem to be really confused how to apply that argument. And we seem to be really confused with how we put the body into the public sphere conversations that we're having. Sometimes, what I mean by that is, sometimes it seems like we're leaving the body out altogether. It's not even being considered. It's almost denying that it even exists. And then other times the body gets thrusted into the middle of the conversation and we won't argue any further than the fact that the body says what it is and it is what it is and it won't be argued with. We're so inconsistent with how we are handling the body in these conversations. In a world full of ideologies and philosophies, in a world of polar opposites, left and right, in a world of progressive and traditional, what do we do with our body? And for those of us here today, here in church, most of us would be saying, well, we're trying to follow the Jesus way. That's the way of life we are trying to practice. And so part of our answer must be, so what does Christ say about our body then? And one more thought to add to this. What if it doesn't stop there? What if our body is only the tip of the iceberg? What if starting the conversation about our body is actually a start of a conversation about all of matter? You know, we're only just catching up, aren't we, to the responsibility for the earth. As young activists across the world are now starting to start the loudest fight ever heard about the growing need for us to look after this beautiful creation that we call our home. What if all of this is connected? What if God is connected into all this redemptive work of making things new? And when he says making things new, he means things. What if God, who created and ordered the material world, still greatly cares for materiality? And if he does, then how should we? What if to God, matter matters? Which brings me to our new series. Man, that was a good intro, right? Get in there. Which brings me to our new series, Matter Matters. And we want to give you something as we start this series. We're going to hand out to you all a series companion, a book that we have made for you. These are going to be available while the whole series is running. So if you're listening to this on podcast today and you weren't here today, grab one next week when you come along to church. It'll be good to see you. We want to give these out. So just we're going to pass those around to everyone in the room. And what this is, it's just a little physical companion. It has some prayers to pray. It has a section for notes. If you want to take notes, you could take those notes today in church, or you could just sit with this during the week in your own devotional time and just think a bit further and jot and journal and see what might happen. Um, it has beautiful photography from Dirk and Danau. Danau's here, so thank you, Danau. I think Dirk's just popped off with Albie, but thank you for your photography. Thank you. Can we say proper thank you? Come on. Come on. Yeah. We... Um, I said to Dirk and Danau, like, this is what we want to do for the series. There's these different headings for each week. Could you take a photo that represents each of those weeks? And they just went, they just beautifully, beautifully did such a good job of creatively presenting something to get us thinking when it comes to the arts and considering this in a bit more of a reflective way. This is a physical thing for a series on physical things. You know, we, um, the bottom line there says it's a series seeking to recover a vision for Christ-centered materiality. No, it's not materialism. We're not talking about our seeking of material things. That's materialism. We are talking about materiality, our living in a physical world. And so you can see there, if you just flip through the pages, you can see where we're going to be going. You can see the different weeks we're going to be talking about different things. 
And so just like in your own time, feel free to use that. Take that with you. Please, please take it with you. It's a, it's a creative gift to you, and we hope that you'll treasure it a little bit in this journey. Um, but with that, let me keep on talking a little bit further about today's introduction. And let's just think a little bit about this matter confusion we find ourselves in. And let's consider some big picture reasons why we might have found ourselves in the position that we are. And so I want to cover a couple of things today. Here's what I'm going to be covering. Worldview, Jewish monoism, Greek dualism, and finally, the 6th century church's weird haircuts. It's all in there today. Hold on. First, all that we're talking about today, everything we're considering, everything in that introduction that I just gave, it is a worldview problem. As we start to look at this topic and in this room today, there's a whole bunch of worldviews. There's a plethora of learned perspectives on how we could talk about this topic. We have all been formed in so many ways. There's formational stories at play throughout this room. And as we talk about the human body and matter and the earth and God, there will be a bunch of opinions. There will be so many opinions. As a culture, as a culture, we are generally a Western society. Thinking in a wide range of ideologies, there's modernism, postmodernism, globalism, liberalism, socialism, nationalism, vegans, and each, <laughs> and each of these things acts like a pseudo-religion. Each of these things acts like its own religious belief. The tribalism around this is intense. We all know what it's like to be in the world today. Say the wrong thing to someone in a different tribe and you could get crucified for it. Also in our worldview, in our story in this land, is, our, is our, the treasure of our indigenous worldview, Te Ao Māori. Viewing the world and the way it works through the Te, Reo Māori, uh, the te Ao Māori lens, looking with that worldview. And then add into it, in this city, we have, we have so many imported worldviews from the immigrants, the immigrant communities. They've arrived from the lands where those worldviews were formed to this land. They've brought them to this land. So if we start to talk about these things, there's a melting pot that we find ourselves in when we talk about the body and the spirit and all of these things. We have all kinds of answers filling the public sphere because we have so many worldviews. Okay, well, what if we were to choose something to find in common to try and find some answers? Let's do that. Um, how about, well, we're Christians and so we have the Bible, right? We should go there. However, that's not even a simple task because even in the scriptures, there's worldviews at play. Um, today, the, the text that I've just chosen to use today from 1 Corinthians, this, this is from a letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were an ancient Greek society. Along with a large chunk of the rest of the New Testament, they had a Greco-Roman worldview. That was what was at play for them. And they're having these letters written to them by these Greek and Hebrew people, men, who, who actually are writing with Hebrew worldviews. There's a collision of worldviews even in the letters themselves. And then we've got this Hebrew worldview that Jesus was. And so to Jesus, then what, what, what does it look like to answer this question? And I guess a way we could think about it is, what kind of human did Jesus think he was? What kind of human, what kind of humanity did Jesus have? Let's consider that question for a moment. What kind of worldview did Jesus have? What was the anthropology of Jesus? What kind of human being did he think of himself and his friends? Well, like everybody, Jesus was a product of his real world. He was uh, a little bit of Christology here. Christ was fully God and fully man. 
and in his fully manness, he was a man of Nazareth. A man who ate and slept, he worked with his hands, he took walks, he had to de-stress, he had to bathe, he had a routine. And part of that routine is that daily, Jesus would have prayed a prayer that his culture prayed, a prayer to Yahweh. As a Jew, he would have recited this prayer daily. The prayer is called the Shema. The prayer is not actually just a prayer. It is a key formational part of their view of humanity. You know, as Westerners, we often read back into the Shema and we think that what the Shema is doing is it's breaking things apart. The Shema goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You know, we hear that as Westerners and we think it's getting divvied up. It's getting broken into pieces. But actually, that is not how Jesus would have seen this. That is not how the Hebrew people people saw this playing out. Their humanity was not broken up into compartments. The key word in the Shema is the word all. Love the Lord your God with all your being. And through these different facets in dynamic play, that's how you love the Lord your God with all that you are. This holistic view was very important to the Hebrew. All means all. Now to help you understand this, I just want to show a little clip from the Bible Project. A short little clip just to break this up from me talking to someone else. This is just a little glimpse of just one word, soul. So love the Lord God with all your soul. And what I want you to notice just in this short little animated video is how much the word soul actually ties to physical things. Okay, so this is the word nefesh and this is from the Bible Project study. The Hebrew word is nefesh. It occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. The common English translation of this word is soul, and that's kind of unfortunate. Here's why. The English word soul comes with lots of baggage from ancient Greek philosophy. It's the idea that the soul is a non-physical, immortal essence of a person that's contained or trapped in their body to be released at death. It's a ghost in the machine kind of idea. This notion is totally foreign to the Bible. It's not at all what nephesh means in biblical Hebrew. The most basic meaning of nephesh is throat. Like when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty, and they say to God, we miss the cucumbers and melons we had in Egypt, now our nephesh has dried up. Or when Joseph was hauled off into slavery in Egypt, his nephesh was put into iron shackles. But nephesh doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and body depend on what comes in and out of your throat, nephesh could also be used to refer to the whole person. Like in Genesis, there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family, that is, 33 people. In the Torah, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer, and a kidnapper is called a nephesh thief. On the first pages of the Bible, both humans and animals are called a living nephesh, and if the life breath has left a human or animal, the nephesh remains. It's just called a dead nephesh, that is, a corpse. So, in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh, rather, they are a nephesh, a living, breathing, physical being. Now that might surprise you because most people assume the Bible says the soul is what survives apart from the body after death. And while the biblical authors do have a concept of people existing after death waiting for their resurrection, they rarely talk about it. And when they do, they don't use the word nephesh. So even though nephesh is often translated as soul, the Hebrew word really refers to the whole human as a living physical organism. In fact, this is why biblical people can often use this word to refer to themselves. And it gets translated me or I. Like in Psalm 119, most translations read, let me live that I may praise you. 
In Hebrew, the poet literally says, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. By using nephesh, the poet emphasizes that their entire being, their life and their body, offer thanks to God. To the Jew, their anthropology was that of a dynamic holism. To the Hebrew, this is the example today of an integrated view of themselves. This theology is called holism. Holism. Everything's bundled up in one. There isn't a split of the body into separate parts, but everything is seen as a dynamic whole. In a way, it's the same way we think about God as Trinity, this dynamic oneness of God. This is the view that means that Paul can tie the body to the place of the Spirit. This means when he's scrolling his news feed and he's looking at all of these things, the body is so elevated and so important to him in his considerations of what those things mean. He's not popping the Spirit into one place over there because he went to church on Sunday and therefore it's been dealt with and it'll be good for another week. No, it's all an integrated whole. They aren't separate, they're together. But his audience, the Corinthians, they're not seeing things that way. It's not a unified vision for them. And so where does this dualistic split come from? Because today that's what we're talking about. Today we're talking about the fact that this is a letter to a people who had a worldview where things had split apart. So where does it come from? Here's a couple of little explanations of what dualism is out of the New Dictionary of Theology. A dualism exists when there are two substances or powers or modes, neither of which is reducible to the other. And Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says, in dualism, mind is contrasted with body. But at different times, different aspects of the mind have been the center of attention. Today, we need to go through history a little bit to see how this has played out and get some answers. So Come with me on a little little ride, okay? Imagine that you are um, a few hundred years before Jesus. So Jesus has not shown up yet. You are an incredibly Hebrew worldview. You've got that holistic view of your whole being and how it works. What you eat matters. What you do with your hair matters. What you do sexually matters. And you have been living amongst a Persian rule for quite some time. And they seem to be thinking similar things to you, actually. And then an army shows up. And this army is led by someone called Alexander the Great, about 300 or so years before Jesus shows up. And he goes on the conquests to drive out the Persians. And he took with him more than just an army. He took with him more than just military might. He took with him a worldview. And in particular, he took his Greek worldview. His Greek view of civilization spreading out across Asia and Egypt. And with that came the worldview that had been formed by the great, great Greek philosophers of his land and his time. Which brings me to another guy. We could talk about quite a few of these guys, but this one's really important. The guy in red, his name is Plato. Plato is one of the ones who this dualistic thought is attributed to the most. We need to talk about Plato a little bit if we're going to talk about dualism. Plato was considered one of the leading thinkers in Greece and he was deeply influenced by uh, a Pythagoras um, thesis of nearly 100 years earlier, which taught a cosmic dualism where matter and form were two equal and interdependent ultimate principles. And this led to a view of man with a dualism between the mind and the body. The mind or the soul was of the supreme importance, while the body existed merely as just a vehicle to serve the soul. Plato 
held to a dualistic view of man, reducing man's body to this vehicle for the soul and the mind. The mind was considered the highest and the best because it enabled man to identify with God. So just to put it really simply and really clearly, Plato's thesis divided up between spirit and flesh. It emphasized spiritual life more than matter. The chasm between Hebrew worldview and Greek worldview is clear. For the Hebrew, as one commentator put it, the Hebrew's approach is always relational and holistic. The Greek approach is scientifically distant, dualistic with matter as the prison of the superior mind. This is such an important distinction for us to start our series with. Because it's not just the splitting up of matter that the Greeks did, but it's also the view of how matter would play out for the church. Because the New Testament church goes on to sit predominantly within a Greek story. The story of the church as it plays out, especially in the scriptures, is one of a Greco-Roman worldview. The split of worldviews is at play heavily in the teaching of the apostles. So much of what the apostles are doing in the scriptures is trying to deal with this worldview split. They're trying to deal with the split between body and mind. They have this Hebrew holism that they are trying to cling to desperately while this Greek splitting is at play in the world around them. It is literally waging war. In today's text, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Is him trying to bridge that gap again and say, bring these together. The tragedy is, and this is the tragedy of the story, while the apostles did this important work, and the apostles waged this important war between matter and spirit, the apostles don't live forever. And in the years to come, the church started to lose its Hebrew holism and more and more it picked up its Greek dualistic one. I just want to tell you briefly about the church that split. You know, in the early church, we find in Acts especially, there's this portrait of the church being this ragtag bunch. Isn't that right? Like a ragtag bunch of Jews and Gentiles, men and women who had eked out an existence by following the way of Jesus and meeting in homes and sharing everything they had. There's just this beautiful picture of generosity among them as they use the very earthy things at their disposal to share and care for each other. Not long after that origin story, this bunch becomes the persecuted church. They're being hunted down. They're being killed as entertainment in the Colosseums as food for the lions. And if that's not the end for them, then they lose their legal rights and their possessions are burnt at a minimum. But even amongst that story of persecution, even amongst that narrative, this is what the story of the church starts to emerge as for that first four centuries of life. They become known as an amazing witness. During the plagues especially, the Christians found themselves to be the ones who were caring for the sick and the dying. Their proximity to those who were dying of the plague was not distant, it was close. They addressed the needs of others that were being discarded. They started to care for the poor in radical ways. They adopted orphans. They conducted signs, wonders, and miracles. They shared homes and their belongings. They brought God's kingdom to earth through the care and faithful witness of the kingdom of God amongst them in physical, real Ways. If I had more time today, I was going to show you a bunch of beautiful quotes from that time, but I don't have time today. I might do it later in the series for other things. If we fast forward from that story to the 6th century, we find a church post-Constantine in a completely new era. 
The church has moved well on from its persecuted days, and it has become what? Does anyone know? What's the 6th century? What is the church now known as? It's not the persecuted church. It is the, it's the state church. It's the church of Rome. And as a result of that, they are not the Jewish minority anymore. They are the church that is the state religion. And as such, it starts to become a wealthy church. It begins to mimic the Greco-Roman culture in which it has found itself grounded in. And in the dominant Roman cultures, two things made big statements. Number one, grand buildings. And number two, your personal presentation. To both the the Greeks and the Romans, the grandeur of your buildings showed your power. And what you wore and the way you cut your hair showed that you were a big deal. Which brings us to the church's grand buildings, some haircuts and robes. You know, it's about this time that the church starts to build some pretty amazing architecture and it fills it with impressive symbols of its wealth and its reason for doing so is not so flash. Here's a little excerpt from Walter Brueggemann in his terrific book, um, Materiality is Resistance. He says this, In the early church, Christian congregations and their bishops paid generous and deliberate attention to the plight of the poor and they managed to give relief. But in the 6th century, there was a rather abrupt turn away from this attentiveness as the church became private about wealth and otherworldly in its hope. Do you remember um, Patrick's quote from last week on the ascension, this thing of otherworldliness? Here it is at play. The church has become focused on a future story in the clouds rather than its presence here on earth. The cause of this abrupt turn was that the wealthy population became dominant in the church and did not want its wealth subject to the needs of the poor in the church. So this turn towards the private and otherworldly is evident, uh, first of all, in the erection of grand mausoleums as hope for another life and as an ostentatious exhibit of wealth. Just think about the early church. They did not have grand buildings. You didn't go and attend something in a big grand church in those first couple of centuries. But here they are starting to appear in history. Why? Now, in amongst this new narrative for the church, not one of the church passing on its wealth to the poor and the suffering, but now one of the church keeping its wealth and using it to show its excess and power, something new has started to happen for those who worked in the church. Along with the architecture changing, those who worked in the church, their style changed. Their hair and their clothing now started to make a statement. And Have you ever noticed the, the Roman haircut, the Caesar cut? Apparently it's coming back, actually. Um, you can go ask your barber for a Caesar and they'll give you one. That, that, that's a quite hard-edged, trimmed hairstyle. And it was amongst a time and a culture of long hair and beards. The Romans actually cut their hair as a sign of power and prestige. It was a way of showing their different class. And what about the Greek philosophers with their white togas or even the Caesars wearing their robes? Again, these clothes spoke of being sophisticated. They spoke of being royal. They spoke of being important. I want to go to Peter Brown, a historian. He says this, Here we witness a progressive othering of the clergy. They became a sacral class. Their dress, their hair, their style, sorry, it's hairstyle, their sexual behavior, it was increasingly expected to be sharply different from that of the laity. Laity just means the everyday people. Religious dress became sharply distinguished from lay dress. The tonsure. Does anyone, does anyone know what the tonsure is? 
I actually jokingly said to um, Tori and Ella this week that I was thinking of cutting my hair to make a really bold point at this point and showing you what a tonsure looks like so you'll never forget the sermon. But then I just couldn't follow through because that's what it is, all right? (laughs) I just can't. Surprise, no. (laughs) I was going to, but I just could not bring myself to it. That's the tonsure. The tonsure was this hairstyle taken up by the, cler- the clerical people of the church. And it's noticed, you must notice that the origins of the tonsure, tonsure does not lie in Hebrew tradition. It doesn't lie in clerical regulation. Where does it come from? It came from the ground up. It came from the Greek worldview. It came from the Roman worldview. It came from the cutting of hair to show that they were a special class. The tonsure emerged as a response from the people working in the church who are to, to separate themselves, those who interceded as the laity. That's a good thing to do, to be the laity. I'm sorry, to be the, um, the sacral. Sorry, it's a good thing to be what they were being. The, the problem is, is that they cut themselves apart with this way of being into a sacral class. They were designated by this means of a shaving of the crown of their head that had deep roots in the ancient folklore of here from their Greek-Roman story. The church leadership was undergoing this makeover. And as a result, here we see the separation starting to form. This was the forming of an us and them story. This is where the physical things of the church have now been brought into the platonic ideal. They have become a vessel for more important things of the spirit elsewhere, for others. The average person saw the church not as something for their everyday life, but instead they saw it as somewhere to go for their soul to be dealt with. And for everything else, they could find that everywhere else. Walter Brueggemann says this to sum it up. In effect, the church gave up its preoccupation with material matters and became busy with spiritual matters of soul making for the next world. They're not click. Here we go. Brueggemann. In effect, the church gave up its preoccupation with material matters and became busy with spiritual matters of soul-making for the next world. You know, for a church which had started out a few centuries earlier as a group of Jewish minorities sharing the physical things that they had in the resurrection life together, and the church a few centuries later that gained a name for itself, not with its building or haircuts, but with its action amongst fellow humanity, this is a long move from that start. By the 6th century, the church has begun to declare the platonic split for itself. Come to us for your spiritual life. All of this is just a vessel to get you somewhere else. All of this progress, and not much of it, is actually about the way of Jesus. It's about sophistication. It's about power. It's about wealth. It's not even about the kingdom of God coming to earth. It's about the kingdom of Greece, Rome, being elevated into the ways of the church in operation. At this point, the church started to say, here are the temples. We have the people to do the work in them for you. The church that used to say, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, has found a new place to do that. The question today, do we continue that trajectory? Or, Do we need to return to a Christ-centered materiality? And that concludes our history lesson for today. Enough of the Greek philosophical thought and the Roman haircuts for now. Let me be honest with you. 
This series is heading into a direction of bringing that split into a more unified whole. It will be confronting to our worldviews. It will critique some of the splits that we have made, and it will, you know, some of the cultural critiques, sorry, and it will, some of the cultural splits that have been made for us, we'll start to see those, even if we've never realized them before. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable at times, and it will be incredibly liberating at other times. It's going to be done with care. It's going to be done with love. And, uh, and we've tried to do it with a bit of creativity. All of this is the quest that this community would be able to honestly reflect on Paul's question. The question that he laid on the culture of his day. That we, we may be able to say, we are to live in the knowledge that our bodies are the temple of God. They would be able to say that together. And so, next Sunday, we're going to start talking about this thing of the temple. What is it? Why does it matter? What did it mean to a Hebrew? And what should it matter to us? What does it mean for us to think about our bodies as the temple of God? We'd love to see you next Sunday. Enjoy your Mother's Day lunches that you're all skirting off for now. Have a wonderful Sabbath. God bless you. Go and be salt and light into a city that desperately needs it. And go as the temple of the Holy Spirit.